Hey everybody, this is John Gregory, and welcome to A Light in the Dark Podcast, Episode 2. start this podcast today by thanking all of you who listened to the first episode and subscribed. This is really a lot of fun. I talked to some friends of mine who listened to it, and I got, I got some pretty good feedback. But one of the comments I got, which I thought was really interesting, is that I sounded a bit like Carl Haas from the Adventures in Good Music program from the old National Public Radio of the 90s. And when I went back and listened to it, you know, he was right. So I'm going to try a little less formal approach and just more of a conversational approach. So hopefully you all will enjoy this. I also want to give a shout out to the Film Photography Podcast Network. Mr. Graham Young was kind enough to list us on his site. Be sure to go to filmpodcastnetwork.com to find a full listing of other film photography podcasts. It is a great resource. On today's episode, I want to go into the process of setting up a darkroom. This should be especially interesting for those of you that have limited space. You don't have to have plumbing, you just need a dark space and some electricity to run your safe light and your enlarger. In my case, I was able to commandeer a corner of my basement, about 6 feet by 9 feet, or 7 feet by 9 feet, and using black plastic sheeting, and some tape and such, I was able to, um, to create this space. Uh, the process of making it light tight was pretty challenging. Uh, I had a basement window that I had to cover up. I actually had two of them. So what I did was take the black plastic sheeting, I double folded it, and used double-sided industrial strength carpet tape. It's the stuff that was uh, made to use out on your patio for one of those outdoor rugs that you would put down so the wind wouldn't blow it off or it would, it would stay put. Stuff worked great. So what I did was put pieces of that around the wall, around the window on the wall. Then I doubled up um, the black tape, black plastic rather, folded it and stuck it up there. Then I took black Gorilla Tape, which is some pretty heavy-duty stuff, and taped that up really tight to the wall. At the very top of the concrete wall was the footer, or the the ledger board, I guess it is, where your, your floor sits on from your upstairs floor. I actually was able to use my staple gun to staple that down, and then I taped over that. So it, it was really light tight. I actually had another window to the right of that, that I did also, but it turned out that that was not in the darkroom. So it's still taped up, and that that keeps any light from leaking through the opening that I used to get get into the darkroom. The next thing I did was figure out where I wanted to attach my wall to the concrete. Now keep in mind when I say wall, I use that term loosely. This was just a single layer of of, uh, opaque black plastic sheeting that I got at a local Home Home Depot store. I bought a roll. I had to order it online and have it shipped to the store because they didn't have it in the store, but it was 100 feet long and 6 feet wide, very heavy, being 6 mil. What I did at that point, I figured out where I wanted to attach the, the plastic to my wall and put the double-sided carpet tape down that from basically from the ceiling to the floor. Now, keep in mind, my ceiling is just 
bare floor joists from my upstairs. That's right below my dining room. So what I did then was take a, I guess it was about an eight foot long um, piece of the plastic. And of course, it's six feet wide. And I stapled that to the ceiling just in a few places to hold it in place. Leaving enough, leaving enough extra plastic to tape to the wall to stick to the double-sided tape so I could seal that up. I then took nylon webbing, which I had purchased from Amazon, purchased a 100-foot roll of one-inch wide nylon, woven nylon webbing. Uh, it was like 7 or $8, so free shipping, not a bad deal. And I was able to take pieces of that and run it along the floor joist where the plastic was attached with just the few staples I used to hold it up, and then attach staples every couple of inches through the webbing, through the plastic into the floor joist, really hold it in place and keep me from accidentally pulling it out if I bumped into it or stepped on it, because it is strong plastic, but staples will pull out pretty easy. So I then, once that was done, I took the, the part that overlaps onto the wall, I peeled, pulled that back, and pulled the double-sided, the the tape off, the backing paper off the double-sided tape that I had already stuck to the wall, and then sealed it tightly up against to the double-sided tape from the ceiling all the way down to the floor. Then I was able to trim the excess plastic down to the down next to the tape, and then took Gorilla Tape, which is really strong stuff, and uh, taped the just overlapped the plastic with uh, with the tape onto the wall. Now, since the ceiling in my basement is just a smidge under seven feet tall, I had an eight-foot length, so I had plenty of uh, plastic on the floor. So what I did at that point was put more double-sided carpet tape on the floor, then peeled off the, back, the backing layer of that and stuck the bottom part of that plastic to the floor real well. Then again, trimmed it and took the Gorilla Tape and taped it to the floor. What this did was leave me... Uh, with a, a six-foot wall that was taut, uh, it was opaque, it was strong, it's not going to go anywhere. I, I may have to go back every now and then and add some tape, but I think it'll, it'll hold up for what I need. Since this was in the corner of my basement, obviously I only had to build two walls. The problem I ran into was I had some old storage shelves that were on the perpendicular wall uh, to, the, to the other concrete wall, and I really wanted to keep those because... Frankly, they, they gave me storage, but they ran, they were probably 12 feet long, and obviously I don't want that room to be 12 feet wide. So what I ended up doing was um, making sure that no light leaked behind the shelves into the dark room. I just basically cut little pieces of plastic, taped them to the wall, and then taped them to the, to the back side of the shelves, uh, sealing up any possible light that could could leak in it because those shelves were in segments and there was a segment right about where I wanted to put my wall. Then I hung the next wall, which was attached to those shelves and came along perpendicular using the same method, taping it to the floor, stapling it to the ceiling. I had a real challenge because I had a uh, heating duct, a very large heating duct, the main trunk for my heating system. But again, the double-sided tape and the Gorilla Tape, it, it, it worked great. So what I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is probably post some pictures of this on on uh, Facebook, and I may even make a YouTube video. We'll see how that goes. The next challenge was how do I make a door? 
I mean, I don't have any wooden frame to, to staple this to. I'm not going to install a door. It's a plastic room for crying out loud. So what I did here was overlap the plastic by about two feet. Uh, it, it actually worked real well. I, I keep the room outside of my dark room with all the lights turned off, and I overlap that plastic and no light gets in. It, it, it really has worked well. The final part of sealing up the room had nothing to do with making it light tight. It was to keep out dust. Since I had bare floor joists above at, at the top of my room, you know, people walking upstairs, there's going to be dust falling down on my larger, on my trays. I couldn't have that. So again, I took the black plastic and I put it, stapled it to the ceiling with the nylon webbing. Uh, just locked it up light or dust tight, and it looks great. The next issue I tackled was storage. I mean, how do I, what do I do for storage in this room? Th those shelves really came in handy. The shelves are about 18 inches deep. Uh, I think there's four or five shelves high, so there, there's a lot of room there. Now, the top two shelves still have a bunch of paint cans on them. I'll eventually get that cleared out, so I'll even have more storage. The other main storage area I have is underneath my larger table is a large shelf. It's 48 inches wide and 35 inches deep uh, with plenty of room uh, to store easels and, and whatever. There's another small storage area underneath the wet size where I put trays and you know, various things that I need for that. Now, the main component I was missing from this dark room is water. And yes, I actually could have put plumbing into there, but it would have been a big undertaking with a lot of expense and a huge run of drain pipe to get to the sewer outlet, and it just really wasn't worth it. So what I did, what, what I'm doing, rather, is I keep a waste bucket, which is just a five-gallon food-grade pickle bucket with a lid on it, so if I have extra, if I just want to pour my chemicals in that I'm not using that are that are exhausted and put the lid on it, and periodically I can dispose of them properly. I also have, uh, I keep a pitcher of water there and a tray to hold my fixed prints. So as I process through the prints, I get them fixed, I shake them off, get all the fixer off I can, and I just put them in a tray of water. Because I'm using resin-coated, and even fiber-based will be fine, I, I just set them, let them sit in the water, and they're going to be fine. They're not going to just degrade or anything. Uh, and, you know, I, I probably only print for an hour, hour and a half at a time. So once I'm done with all my printing, I then take those prints out of that tray, put them in a dry tray because I don't want to carry a tray of water up the stairs, take those upstairs to my laundry room where I have a big double sink and I I wash them in there and with resin coated prints you really don't have to wash them very long it's it just it just comes off of them now for the dry side I really wanted plenty of room to work so I built a very sturdy table uh, for my enlarger that was really about twice the width that I needed for the enlarger now keep in mind I have a Bessler 45 uh, it, it is a very large enlarger but I wanted plenty of room to lay out my boxes of paper, to keep my notebook where I write down my, uh, my, my, the details about my printing so I can recreate things. Uh, plenty of room to store uh, things like focusing scopes or green focuser, extra, extra negative carriers, filters, pretty much everything I need. 
So this this really turned out well, and and I do need to post that. I do have plans for that that I can post on uh, our Facebook page, and I'll do that real soon. The other thing that I had to purchase was a uh, although my my darkroom that I purchased from the guy in Michigan came with a couple of uh, timers. I'm used to using a a uh, electronic timer. Specifically, the Gray, Gray Lab 451 is what I had before, and they still make that one, but it's really expensive. This is about $250. So I went on eBay and I found a Gray Lab 450, which is just an earlier model, but it was in great shape and it pretty much does everything I want to. And I think I paid like 45 bucks for it, so it was really worth worth the worth the effort. Uh, the other, you know, the things that we have there are uh, I have several easels that came with the dark room. And I'd always use a four-bladed easel in my old darkroom, but I didn't have it anymore. And the guy that uh, sold me this darkroom had some borderless easels that actually I kind of like. You just lock the paper in, and uh, it holds it flat, and it does a great job. And I don't have to deal with borders, which is which is perfectly fine with me. So I'm pretty happy with what I got there. Now, the one thing that I... I did get from there from the uh, guy in Michigan was a huge Thomas Industries sodium vapor safe light. That thing puts out a ton of light and it was just way too big. It, it's meant for a dark room, you know, that's like a school dark room or a commercial dark room that's probably, you know, 20 feet by 15 feet that has a dozen enlargers in it. it it's, just, it's just crazy. There's no way I would ever use that. So what I did, I, I a friend of mine, Mr. Nick Folio, I work with, he's a darkroom guy, he had an extra Kodak, uh, old Kodak safe light, but it didn't have the lens through it. Well, he gave that to me. He had several. He didn't care. He just glad to get rid of it, I think, and I really appreciate it. Then I went over to Chuck Rubin's Photographics, is a local used camera store here in Louisville, and they just happened to have one of the filters. Five bucks I walked out of there for it with it. So I got a 40-watt LED bulb, stuck it in there, and put the filter on it. And lo and behold, I had a safe light. It works great. Now, I did find out that it's fine for Ilford papers, but uh, when I bought some Oriental paper, it was way too much safe light for it. It, it fogged the paper. It was just the 40 watts was too much. And they recommended, Oriental recommended 15 watts. So what I did, I had a dimmable LED bulb in there. I actually bought a little switch that you can insert between the plug and the outlet that has a dimmer on it. It works great. So now when I, uh, if I use the Oriental paper, I just dim it down a bit. And, uh, you know, I tested the paper to figure out exactly how far I need to dim it down because... The last thing I want is to do a print and then notice that all my whites are kind of gray because that's what's going to happen if, if your safe light fogs your paper. And in a future episode, we will talk about testing your darkroom, making sure it's light tight, making sure that your safe light is good for the paper. And it's very important that every paper that you get, if you get a new kind of paper, that you test that. And actually, you should test your paper periodically because safe light filters will actually wear out and degrade and you might be fogging your paper and you don't even realize it. On the wet side, uh, the darkroom setup that I purchased had a bunch of trays. I, it had trays for even up to 20 by 24 prints. Now, I really don't know that I'm ever going to do 20 by 24, but I'm definitely planning on doing 11 by 14. 
So some of the trays were these Yankee trays that uh, would probably be my primary tray. They'll do up to 11 by 14. But I found that they were kind of, kind of a problem. They, they really had no texture on the bottom. And so when I would slip the print in, it would stick to the bottom of the pan or to the bottom of the tray, and I couldn't slip my tongs underneath them. And I know a lot of people say, I'll just stick your fingers in it. It's not going to hurt anything. Frankly, I don't really care to stick my fingers in, in photographic chemicals. It's just not something I'm comfortable doing. Now, I do have rubber gloves, and I may start using those, the disposable rubber gloves, because some people say you have better control over it than with tongs. So to, to remedy this problem, one thing I bought was a pair, a set of stainless steel tongs. They were a little pricey. I think I paid, uh, I think there were four tongs for about $30, $28 on, at B&H. But I also bought some Patterson trays that were, that would handle 11 by 14 prints. But the nice thing about them, they're actually 12 by 16. So they're a little bit wider and a little bit longer. So if you put an 11 by 14 sheet of paper in there, you actually have a little room to get your fingers or your tongue underneath the print. If you have an, a straight 11 by 14 tray and you put the paper in there, you can't pull the print out because you can't get your fingers or tongs underneath it. So, and these were really nice. Now, the problem I ran into is when I first tried them out with the Yankee, Yankee trays, I was able to use a quart of chemical in each tray, and that worked fine. Well, these larger trays that had the had grooves in them that were, were deep, when I put the quart of chemicals in the tray, it didn't even cover the bottom of the tray. So I had to go to a half-gallon bottle, which is probably better. And just uh, I think that works out better. Now, one of the other items that I received in the in the package that I bought from the photographer up in Michigan was a Gray Lab 300 timer. This is the big clock face timer. It's about a 10 inch square, big numbers that glow in the dark, and you just dial it around and you hit start. Now I use that for timing my prints. That sits on a shelf to the right, kind of up and out of the way. And so typically, like when I put the the uh, the exposed paper into the developer. I have it set for two minutes. I start it off. I slip it in there. Just let it let it do its thing for two minutes. When it goes off, I'm able to pull it out. Put it in the fixture for, I mean, the stop bath for 30 seconds. Again, set the timer, go. Then I put it in the fixture for two minutes at least. Usually about two works. So you kind of have to experiment with that. At that point, drain, drain the fixture off the... Uh, Hold the print up, let the, the fixture drain off, and drop it in your water tray for washing at a later time. One of the other things that I put in the darkroom was uh, a paper towel holder. Now, I don't use your typical Bounty or store-bought paper towels. I actually use the blue, I think Scott makes them, they're blue mechanic towels. They're the kinds you would see at a gas station where they check your oil. The nice thing about them, they're very tough very thick, and they don't put off as much lint or, or dust as the regular paper towels. And as we know, dust is the enemy in the darkroom. Okay, folks, that's going to wrap this uh, episode up. Um, I want to thank everybody for sending in lots of ideas for future episodes. I think that uh, we might uh, review papers next week, uh, talk about the different uh, 
uh, different papers, or we may just uh, talk about procedures for testing your darkroom and making sure it's light tight and testing your safe light. All those little things that you have to do to keep a darkroom up and going and uh, making sure that you're able to make a quality print. And once again, I would like to thank Mr. Shane Eisenberg for providing music for this podcast. The track we're using is called Savannah Nights. Uh, It's a real nice track you can find on iTunes. He has an EP out there called Between the Clouds. Remember, please be sure to send emails to lightdark at mediagg.com with questions that I will share with other podcast listeners, as well as topics you would like to hear covered on this podcast. Be sure to include your social media info and go to our Facebook group, A Light in the Dark Podcast Group. You can find me on Facebook at john.gregory.794. I'm also on Instagram at johngregory7233. And my favorite site is Flickr. Yeah, I know, it's old school. But you can find me there at jwgreg. Until next time, this is John Gregory saying, keep on fixing.